calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. The sequel to Max Quick, Book One, The Pocket and the Pendant, produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on the Max Quick series or this podcast, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. Twelve, the Dark Victorian. Casey knew that she shouldn't, but she just had to. She was reasonably sure that Blackthorn was a Niberian, but she had to prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. To herself as much as to Sasha, Cody, and Logan. And she needed to know what that black-hearted son-of-a-gun was up to. Of course, it was probably an escape plan. He and his fellow Centurions were prisoners in the jip just as much as she was, and they wanted to break out. He was working on something. She felt certain of that. He wouldn't just be taking this imprisonment lying down, and the answers, or at least some clues, might be in his house. She had to get inside and snoop around when he wasn't there. That was the part she knew she shouldn't do, but she just had to. If she could learn how he meant to escape, he might tell her how to get out of here as well. Or at the very least, it might inform her as to the true nature of what this place, Arturo Jip, actually was. It had been on her mind even more relentlessly ever since she'd seen the parallel between Arturo Jip and the story of Indra and the Ants. The idea of being trapped somehow in a cycle had struck a chord. Something about it rang true, and it was imperative that they break free, and soon. But Logan or Cody would never approve and Sasha would give her a tongue lashing. They would try to stop her. Therefore, she couldn't tell them. This was a solo mission. She felt bad about it, but she also felt a sense of urgency. Some event was approaching. Something important. She felt it in her bones. She had to be ready. And they had to get back on Anki's trail. It had been nearly two months since their arrival in the jip. The crazy old man might be anywhere now. She wondered how Max and Ian were doing on their mission for the upteenth time, but however they were faring, Casey was certain they weren't just waiting things out in some teepee, sitting on their hands. They were doing things, sneaking around, working towards their goal, and she felt more confident since learning how to handle a gun. She had to admit it, she was still no match for Blackthorn, that was for sure. But if she surprised him, and if it was necessary, she now felt that she could actually shoot him, it was at least now possible. 
So she waited for an opportunity, and one evening, about seven weeks after she started training with Logan, she got it. Sasha and Logan had left for the day for a solo lesson, and Cody had gone to the store. That had left her all alone in the teepee. She quietly strapped on her gun belts and slipped out. She headed towards the Victorian, slinking along the growing shadows at the back of the Whitby and other buildings, keeping out of sight of the main thoroughfare. She'd noticed during walks with Cody that Blackthorn liked to patrol the streets in the early evening. Conservative, unwavering, Nuberians loved the rituals. This was his. He'd be out of his front door by 7 p.m. sharp, clockwork, back by 9. More than enough time to have a peaky look-see. And as predicted, at precisely 7 o'clock, Blackthorn stepped out of his front door and locked it. She hovered in the darkness of the alley, nearby, and watched him tick by. By 7.01, he was gone. But she wanted to make absolutely certain. And honestly, she was pretty nervous. Ten minutes of waiting, however, was more than enough time. She'd chosen her old clothes for this. Jeans, boots, and her golden maroon hoodie. They were clothes she knew, felt at home in. They felt safe. Besides her guns, she'd also brought along her pen light. Putting the hood up now, she slipped quietly through the darkness, slinking around to the back of the Victorian. She saw immediately that she was in luck. A floor-level window was cracked open. She'd expected something like this. Blackthorn had everyone in town so terrified that no one would ever even think of breaking into his house. And he knew it. No one, except Casey Serranus, she thought to herself, smiling. In moments, she'd lifted the wooden window and slipped inside. She didn't dare risk a light, yet it would be seen. She could see that now. The front street was very clearly visible from the back room in which she crouched. The scant lace curtains were little more than a decoration. They certainly didn't act as blinds. Her eyes adjusted quickly, however, and she found that the ambient light drifting in from the street was more than enough to see with. The ground floor was barely furnished. It was stoic, functional, clean to the point of obsession. There was a plain, hard-looking couch that invited standing. There was a tall grandfather clock, a long gold arm swinging within, slicing the seconds down with excruciating precision. There was a fireplace, a modest table with a gas lamp, a few wooden chairs, a stark dining room table. No pictures or rugs. She quickly checked through the various downstairs rooms. There was simply nowhere to put anything. A small closet in the kitchen only revealed a broom. Nice house, Blackthorn, she thought. I have one word for you. Ikea. She quickly scampered upstairs, keeping an eye on the street outside. But as she reached the top of the stairs, she was suddenly, inexplicably, back down at the bottom again. What the hell? The answer came to her at once. Mamshub. Like the house in Texas, the one that she, Ian, and Max had found. Max had encountered a Namshub in the doorframe, specifically designed to keep him from going into the house. Every time he tried to enter, it hit him, caused him to turn around and leave, and forget ever having been there. Later, Max discovered that he himself had put that particular Namshub in place, to keep himself in the dark, to keep him from understanding that he was, in fact, not human, but Nuberian. Likewise, Blackthorn must have set one up. He had some kind of protection in place to keep people from coming upstairs, a Nuberian mentalist device, a thought vibration set into a particular place. It was a sort of umphalos, she had gathered from talking with Max about it later. A functional way to infuse a location with a powerful intention, 
a thought, one that pounded itself into anyone that encountered it. Well, already, this all but proved he was a Nibirian, or that he knew one. And it also suggested something very interesting was upstairs. Maybe the answer to how he intended to break out of Arturo Jip. But then she felt a stab of panic. She remembered something else about the house in Texas. They had been forced to hide almost immediately upon entering. Siren's sky chambers had appeared only moments later. They had spied on them from the attic. Siren had brought someone with him, an expert of some kind on namshubs. He'd sounded like your average whiny human geek, but a knowledgeable one. Casey never did find out who he was. But she did remember clearly that he was able to read the namshub. He knew immediately that it had been penetrated, like a tripped alarm. He even knew how many times it had been set off. Even though Max, Casey, and Ian had evaded Siren, this one event had made the Nuberian suspicious. They knew it meant that others were out and about in the pocket. They had started a comprehensive sweep, and as a direct result, they had finally discovered the serpents and mermaids. All 200 kids were rounded up, including Sasha, and enslaved. Casey's heart sunk. She had been partially responsible for the misery Sasha had endured. The last time she had carelessly set off a Namshub, this one act had set a terrible chain of events into motion. Had she just done it again? Furthermore, Jadith had remotely detected the Namshub's activation and had sent Siren to investigate. And that's why he'd come to the Texas house in the first place. What if Blackthorn could also remotely detect that his Namshub had been tripped? Why, Blackthorn might already know that his house had been penetrated. He might be on his way back this very instant. Oh, hell! Cursing, Casey crouched and crept up to the front window, being very careful to stay in the shadows. There was no immediate sign of him. Well, maybe he was sneaking around back, looking to catch his intruder unaware. If he did know that someone was in here, he probably wasn't going to announce his presence by marching right up to the front door. But then again, maybe he would. Blackthorn was pretty cocksure of himself. Casey was starting to get the itch to bolt. If she dove through the back window right now, she might just make it before he returned. She'd nearly mind up her mind to abort when suddenly Blackthorn himself sauntered into view down the street. He'd rounded a corner and come upon two drunken men. Their faces fell when they saw him. Bad luck. He talked calmly to them while lighting a small cigar. She couldn't hear the exchange, but Blackthorn didn't seem at all concerned about the Victorian. His gaze didn't come towards it even once. Clearly terrified, nodded vigorously, and then Blackthorn let them go. He simply continued down the street, puffing his cigar, his oblivious back to the Victorian. He didn't seem to know that his Namshub had been tripped. By degrees, Casey relaxed. It was still on. And she might not get this chance again. If he came back and could see they had been tripped, he would no doubt double his defenses. She looked back towards the staircase glumly. She would have to fight her way through that thing. It was possible, but she had an advantage. She knew what it was. She understood what she was up against. It had likely been designed with the local hoopleheads in mind, not someone who comprehended it. Standing at the bottom, she steeled herself. She needed to formulate clear intent from the top of her mind all the way to the bottom that the Namshub would not affect her. It will not. Her will had to be stronger than its author's. On impulse, she bolted up the stairs, anger firing her, energizing her. She fixed her gaze on the last stair. But as she stepped on it, she felt her entire form go rigid, as if from electric shock. No! She shouted in her mind. It felt like a magnetic repulsion field was pushing her back down, 
demanding that she should go now and that she should leave. Her teeth clenched. She started sweating fiercely. But then the thought occurred to her that the very fact she was here, even in the stalemate, and was not already back down at the bottom of the stairs, meant she'd already won a sort of victory. It encouraged her. Yes, she thought fiercely. That's right. I'm winning because I haven't already lost. And her need drove her. She had to get out of the jip. She had to find Enki. And the answers were through this Namshub. She had to drive her way through to the other side of it. Then she became aware that the source of the, quote, magnetic field was just her own arm muscles, tensing and vibrating, clenching the railings, pushing her body back. It was strange, this realization, like suddenly understanding how a magic trick is done, or seeing that picture of a vase that became two faces looking at each other. There was no magnetic field. It was just her arms. She was holding herself back. But they were her arms. She controlled them. That's some Nuberian thing. As soon as she was clear about this, it became easy. She relaxed them. Casey fell forward and collapsed on the floor past the top stair, panting, her mind reeling. She was through. No time to sit here, Casey thought. We have to get in there before Blackthorn got back. Blackthorn's bedroom was large but spartan, like the rest of the house. It was mostly cold, empty space of a sort that seemed to suck the air out of your lungs. There was an uncomfortable-looking wooden bed that looked like it had never been slept in. There was a black trunk and dresser. But no mirror, she noted. Blackthorn didn't like to look at himself. In the closet, she found several changes of his black clothes, all exactly the same. <laughs> of course, she thought. It would have been funny if she weren't so nervous. But she didn't find anything obviously out of the ordinary. The dresser contained only clothes. She opened the trunk and carefully rummaged through it. There were a couple of guns. Normal guns. Not like the beautiful and terrible black and gold guns she'd seen him carry. There was a large, neat stack of fresh white cloth. For cleaning, it seemed. And some papers. A few bars of gold bullion. But nothing distinctly Nuberian. There was a lone black wooden chair and a small desk near the window. Almost like a school desk more than anything else. It was the one thing that appeared out of place in this entire house. As Casey approached, she saw, carved into the desk in several places, was a single word. It looked like it might have been a name. The name had been carved over and over again and crossed out. It looked as if someone had gone mad at this desk. Casey tried to make out what the word was. It looked like nine or ten letters and clearly began with a K. In another place, she made out an R. In the middle and an A near the end, but not the last letter. But try as she might, she couldn't make out any more. There was only one other room down the hallway. Casey quickly entered it. There were a few stacks of furniture, pretty things, a large mirror, a kitchen table and chairs, a love seat, rugs and draperies, another mirror. It was as if these everyday things annoyed or bothered him, and so he had flung them into the room and forgotten about them entirely. It was a shame, if these things were used in the house, it could actually be a comfy sort of place, instead of the cold, stark, monochromatic crypt that it was. Satisfied that there was nothing of interest in this room either, Casey scratched her head. She had already searched the hole upstairs and found nothing, yet the namshub on the staircase had been put in place for a reason. It was guarding something. It had to be. A possible answer occurred to her. Maybe it guards Blackthorn, while he's sleeping. But she pushed the idea away as soon as it occurred to her. 
Blackthorn seemed like a light sleeper. He, undoubtedly, was always alert of his surroundings, even when napping. Not that she could imagine him even sleeping at all. No, there was something else up here. She'd missed it. She suddenly felt sure of it. She went back into Blackthorn's bedroom and stared a hole into it. She pushed along the walls, methodically circling the room. Was there a hidden compartment? Something where he might keep things he wished no one to see? Casey knocked lightly, listening for something that sounded hollow. But the wooden walls seemed solid all around. Yet on the far side of the room, by the bedroom window in the back of the Victorian, she saw the faint, wispy outlines of a geometric shape at hand level. It looked like an octagon. It can't be that easy, can it? Casey thought. But maybe it was. Maybe Blackthorn was just that sure of himself. She pushed on it. There was a grating noise, and a round section of wall nearby suddenly pushed back and then rolled into the wall. Casey jumped in surprise. But she was also delighted. This was exactly the sort of thing she was hoping to find. The open compartment now revealed was a short, round hallway. The curved walls were made of a pearly white substance that gave off a faint, watery glow or reflection. Casey held her penlight ready, but found she wouldn't have to use it. There was more than enough shimmering ambient light in here to see clearly. The surfaces were serene and exotic, organic, and jarringly incongruent with the Victorian's rugged frontier sensibilities. Casey smiled despite herself, for there was something completely familiar about the style of this hallway. She'd seen it before. It was exactly like the inside of a sky chamber. Blackthorn had a Nuberian compartment built into his Victorian. But what was such an otherworldly compartment doing in Blackthorn's home? Why not just a normal secret compartment? You know, made of wood. But there was another surprise. For in a group in the back of the room lay three large jewels. Omphalos, the Nuberian gemstones that bent reality. Hello, Casey thought and these three looked like the right size and shape to have originally been part of the crashed sky chamber in the desert. Blackthorn, or someone, had evidently recovered or salvaged them. Perhaps the Umphalos needed special protection, Casey thought, like radiation shielding or something. A normal wooden compartment wouldn't do the trick. It had to be a vault of some kind that provided the extra shielding like a lead room. After all, they had been in the jip now for years. It was likely they would be here for years to come. In that case, this wasn't a secret compartment at all. It was just a compartment. It wasn't meant to be hidden or concealed. Blackthorn simply thought no one would ever dare to come up here, and even if they did, his Namshub would stop them. She pressed the octagon again. The chamber closed. No, the purpose of this compartment was to properly store the Amphalos gems. Until... he was ready to use them? For what? But there was no denying it. Between the Namshub, the secret compartment, and now the jewels, Blackthorn was either a Nuberian himself, or he was working with them. There was no longer any doubt. There was a sudden jolt and whoosh of air from the front door opening downstairs. Heavily booted footsteps fell against the wooden floor. The door slammed closed. What the hell? Blackthorn was home early for some reason. Casey looked around in panic. She had to hide, and quickly. She couldn't hide in the Duberian chamber. That was out. But what about the extra room? That was probably the safest place. It seemed like Blackthorn never went in there. 
Quickly now, she tiptoed skittering down the hallway and into the unused room. She took her time, silently closing the door and locking herself in. The sheriff was still banging around downstairs. So far, he seemed unaware of her presence. Casey looked around the room a bit more now. Was there somewhere in here she could hide? In case Blackthorne suddenly suspected someone was in the house. Oh, he might find the trip Namshub. There was a small square hole in the ceiling. It was a small attic or crawl space. She hadn't noticed it before. She'd only poked her head in this room briefly. There was a tallish dresser directly underneath the hole. She could climb up easily. Casey didn't waste any time. Taking her guns off to prevent them falling out of their holsters, she held the belt in one hand and pulled herself up onto the dresser. From there, she hoisted herself up into the crawl space. There were a few planks laid across the ceiling beams of the Victorian. She saw that she could clamber across them and over the entire second floor. After a few moments' thought, it occurred to her that she could position herself over Blackthorne's room, keep an eye on him if he came up here, keep a gun trained on him. That was the smart thing to do, even if it was scary. She'd have to drop on him if things went wrong. She shimmied on her belly across the boards until she was directly over the room. There were several cracks between the boards and knotholes she could easily see through. Quietly, ever so quietly, she drew one of her guns and waited. Within ten minutes, Blackthorn walked up the creaky stairs. Casey held her breath. This was the moment of truth. Would he know she had been up here? If he did, he gave no sign. He entered his room lazily and lit the lantern on his desk. He took off his gun holster and hung it on a nearby chair. By the dim gaslight that now barely illuminated the room, Blackthorn removed his white button-down shirt. Casey gasped. His entire torso, powerful and well-muscled, was covered with a strange, intricate black tattoo. It looked like a jumble of jigsaw puzzle pieces. It ran all the way up his arms, terminating just before his hands. It was almost as if he were a mechanical man, and you could now see his insides whirring and clicking. By day, his wrist-length sleeves, black waistcoat, and dark-flowing dust-flowered overcoat, the uniform of the sheriff, the protector of the innocent, covered these strange heathen markings. But not now. He suddenly knelt to the floor as if he were meditating and sighed. He made a fist. The muscles in his forearm bulged and rippled, shaking under some violent strain. He then relaxed his arm and hunched over, stretching the lateral dorsal muscles in his back. Oddly, some of the puzzle pieces of the tattoo seemed to move when he did this. A few shuffled towards the center of his back, and a few that were there shuffled to the periphery. That's got to be an optical illusion, Casey thought to herself. Deliberately, slowly, Blackthorn removed one of his guns from the holster slung over a chair. He contemplated the shiny gold leaf swirl adorning the barrel, the heavy polished black metal hand grips. A weapon infused with thunder, a storm in his hands. He quickly broke it apart. Several pieces now lay before him on pristine white cloth. Bits of black gunk now stained the cotton bedding, but he paid it no heed. He meticulously cleaned and oiled each component. Then, he snapped them all back together again, with blinding speed, and spun the swing-out cylinder and stared at the kaleidoscope of death in his hands. Satisfied, he repeated the same ritual with the other gun. Both guns now lay before him, shining, renewed, ready. He meditated on them for a moment, and then, in a flash, grabbed them both and rolled on the floor like he was being shot at. He spun and twisted, squeezing off imaginary rounds at his phantom opponents. 
click, click, over his head. Clickety, click, click. Then crossing his arms, felling enemies on either side of him. His muscles rippled and strained underneath a strange puzzle tattoo, like children fighting underneath some bizarre blanket. He bucked lividly to avoid an imaginary shot and landed with both guns pointing, firing several times from the ground. Click, 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 click. It was like watching a martial arts expert, Casey thought. Every motion was perfect, choreographed, precise. Each defense flowed into an offense. No energy, no movement was wasted. Then he spun both guns in his hand, classic western machismo, and slid them into imaginary holsters. Then he relaxed, set one gun down, and held the other one close to his face. He knew these guns. He was one with them, fused with them. His arms did not end in hands. They ended in guns. Casey thought for a second that she should leave now. The guns were not loaded. It was the one time she would have this advantage. It may give her precious seconds to escape with her life. She had intruded on the sanctity of Blackthorn's lair. He would not take kindly to that. Climb down, she told herself. Climb down now and run down the stairs. You might actually leave here alive. The desire was almost overpowering. For the first time, she felt a gush of real fear, real terror. Blackthorn suddenly looked up at the ceiling as though he just caught a whiff of blood. His eyes darted around. He knew something was up there. Oh, God. Oh, please, no. Casey's hands shook. All of Logan's training fled from her mind. It hadn't made her immune to fear, after all, not to something like this. All she could think about was Blackthorn killing the blacksmith. How easily he had done it. Her own aim was wobbly and wretched not three seconds into her first real gunfight. But she was ashamed of her fear, which made it all the worse. Blackthorn rolled suddenly and had his other black iron in one swift motion. In another, he'd loaded a few bullets in each. Oh, crap! Casey pushed herself off her belly, just in time. Blackthorn fired up into the ceiling, ventilating the exact spot that she'd just been laying. Casey bumped her head savagely on the beam and bit down on her cheek to keep from screaming out in terror and pain. Her gun hand was shaking far too badly to fire effectively. Whoever you are, tonight you sleep in dirt, Blackthorn snarled. More lead ripped through the planks beneath Casey. That did it. She ran in a crouch back across the crawlspace, trying like hell not to scream. She dropped through the hole above the extra room. Blackthorn was still busy firing at his ceiling, but the sudden creak of a floorboard beneath Casey in the extra room brought him roaring into the hallway. She'd locked the door, but she knew that was just a speed bump. Blackthorn beat through it in an instant. For a split second, she thought of jumping out the window, but she was two stories up, and if she didn't break her leg, Blackthorn would just shoot her as she ran moments later. So Casey did the only thing that she thought might work, that had a chance in hell of working. She tore the white covering off the full-length mirror. There was no Omphalos, no Chrononomicon helping her awareness this time. There was just her own awareness and need. She prayed it was enough. It would have to be, for she only had seconds left to live. A bullet tore through the upper part of the wooden door, sending splinters flying. Then Blackthorn threw his weight violently against the area he just shot. The sinews of wood jumped and almost gave. Casey held her breath and dove into the mirror. Another gunshot and another shoulder, the sound of wood ripping to shreds. 
Casey wasn't even sure she made it through the glass until she heard it shatter behind her. Blackthorn shot it to pieces within seconds of her entering it. She could see him now on the other side, a mystified gorilla. She watched the pieces and shards now splashing around the extra room. He was thoroughly confused. He had been so certain someone was in here. Sure enough, he sprang to the window next to see if anyone had jumped down. And then she lost track of him in the darkness of the nether continuum behind the mirror, the other side of the looking glass. Casey was a wreck. Her breathing was rusty and ragged, but she was relieved for the moment at her escape. However, this quickly gave way to a feeling of being suffocated by the void-soaked, inky blackness all around her. She'd never liked the weird subworld of mirrors. It was like floating in an endless, cold, dark sea. She had to get out of here before she had a panic attack. Ever since she'd entered mirrors a few times during the pocket, she'd had a recurring nightmare that she would enter a mirror and find that she couldn't return again to the normal world. It would swallow her whole and forever. She'd read somewhere that primitives wouldn't allow mirrors in their houses. They understood that they were portals. With a start, she wondered whether it was why Blackthorn had locked all of his mirrors up in the room in the first place. Perhaps to keep people from entering his house through them? There was a light in the darkness up there a bit on the left. She focused all her energy on getting to that light, getting the hell out of here before she freaked. She arrived and realized with a start that she was looking out of the mirror over the bar at the Lucky 13. But weirdly, all the people were outside, or in the doorway looking outside. Of course, she thought. They were wondering what all the gunfire over the Victorian was about. Taking advantage of this distraction, she lurched forward and popped out of the mirror. She felt like a scraggly rag doll behind the bar with a thud. But she was alive, and she knew a whole lot more than she had before. Eldon was outside with the others, luckily. She scooted around the bar and slinked into a chair in the corner as though she'd been there the entire night. Later that evening, Casey slipped silently into the teepee but not silently enough to fool Logan. She heard the Indian draw on her and quickly whispered, It's me! Sasha threw her covers off and sat bolt upright. Where the hell have you been? I I had something I had to do. You won't be happy about it. But trust me, it was worth it. I found out a lot. Cody's out looking for you right now, you know. We've been worried sick, and when we heard shots up at the Victorian... I know, I know. He was shooting at me. But I... Good crap! Blackthorn was shooting at you? Sasha howled. Yeah, but he missed, obviously. I did my mirror thing and escaped. He knows someone was in his house, but he doesn't know who. Sasha was shaking with fright and anger all at once. Casey! I know. I told you you wouldn't like it. I'm sorry I frightened you. But just be quiet for a minute. It was all worth it. Listen to what I found out. Blackthorn has a namshub in his house. And he has a secret compartment in his wall. It looks exactly like a little mini sky chamber. It was definitely Nuberian. And he has three Umphalos hidden in there. They look like the missing gems from the crashed sky chamber. In short, there's no longer any doubt. Blackthorn is a Nuberian. Sasha stared at her dumbfounded. You're sure, aren't you? Positive. Sasha took this in for a moment. Wow. You know, I kind of doubted it, to be honest. And I still doubt it. Cody grumbled, poking his head into the teepee. Cody, Casey said. You, young miss, you gave us quite a scare. That wasn't a very nice thing to do. I know, Casey said sheepishly, but I had to. We had to know. Cody nodded. I understand, but next time, trust us. Let us help you. Don't just go off by yourself on these solo missions anymore. 
and then more quietly, It's not fair to the people who love you. Casey nodded, suddenly with tears in her eyes. I know this isn't the first time you've done this, Sasha said. You were up to something that morning I took a bath at the Whitby, and it wasn't just to check out the Sheridan brothers harassing Logan. You were gone long before that started. Casey nodded again and decided to fess up. I know. I was spying on Blackthorn again that time also. He went into the fortune tellers. I snuck under the boardwalk and listened in. Cody and Sasha just stared at her. No more of this, Casey, Cody said. Please. If we're going to do these things, and they really are necessary, then let's do them together. We can help you. Casey nodded the third time. Okay. From now on, I promise. I mean, I'm still having a hard time believing Blackthorn is one of these star people. It's not that I don't trust you. It's just hard for me to imagine. But never mind that. Blackthorn is just a regular gunfighter is dangerous enough. But if it really is also what you say he is... Casey nodded and sniffled a bit. I know, I'm sorry. Cody gave her a hug. When she came up for air after a long moment, she found Sasha looking at her with an amused expression on her face. What? Casey asked. Oh, nothing, Sasha said. You've just come a long way from the mousy, crying little girl you used to be during the pocket. Look at you, sneaking around by yourself, following the Berians. I'm mad at you, but I have to admit, I'm impressed. I'm supposed to be the brave one, you know, running around with my serp blade and my motocross gear. Casey smiled. It was true. She hadn't really thought about it that way. Don't go getting too proud of yourself, though, Logan growled. Listen to your friends. Later that night, Casey and Sasha were unable to sleep. They lay awake, whispering in the dark. Soon, talk turned to the time of the pocket. It reminds me of when the Sky Chambers came for us in Caledonia Springs, Sasha said. You know, the serpents in Mermaid's Town, when they captured all of us. Casey nodded slowly. You don't really talk much about that. I don't like to think about it, Sasha replied. But I'll tell you the story now, if you want. I mean, I feel like telling you. Casey nodded again. Sasha took a deep breath to steady herself and then said, They came while we were all sleeping. I guess you could say it was during the night, but in the pocket there was no day or night, only partial eclipse in the sky. Anyway, I woke up first. I heard all the screaming outside. I ran to the window, and there in the sky was a UFO, what I later found out was a sky chamber. Immediately I thought of Ian and all his warnings to Ace. He'd seen this coming. But Ace didn't listen. Actually, at that time, I didn't listen much either. I saw this weird red and purple beam shooting out of the UFO and into another house, and three kids suddenly came flying out of the window. The beam was sucking them up like a big vacuum cleaner. Two of them zipped out and seemed to fall up right into the UFO, yelling their heads off. They disappeared into a hole at the bottom of the ship. The third kid had a firm grip on the window pane and was hanging on as hard as he could for a good minute, like the winds of a hurricane were buffeting him. But finally, the pull of the light beams were just too much, and the UFO inhaled him as well. Anyway, I screamed and woke up Ace. He came to the window and saw the UFO suck some more kids up. His face went white as a ghost. He was watching his little fantasy world of the Serps fall apart in a single moment. This was the one thing he never wanted to think about, but he had no choice now. The ships had come at last. His knees buckled, he was shaking so badly. And I was screaming at him, saying, What do we do? What do we do? I was in a panic also, but not because I cared about the Serps ending, but because for the first time since the pocket happened, 
I was truly afraid for my life. Run, Ace said numbly. Just run, as fast as we can. We took only the time to put on some new sneakers. We always had several pairs on hand. Wuxing tended to wear them out pretty quickly. And I was in a nightgown, but Ace was wearing nothing but boxer shorts. We looked pretty funny. And Ace managed to grab his trench coat, but he hadn't put it on yet. Together we bolted out the back door and into the hills behind the house. By this time it was like an air raid or something. There were like seven or eight sky chambers at least circling above the town, blasting that red and purple light down on everything. And everywhere you looked, kids were being sucked up into the sky. Some of them clung painfully to tree limbs or tops of buildings for several minutes, but in the end, they were all sucked up. Ace and I whooshed faster than we ever had before. It was pretty dangerous, the speeds we were running at, while looking over our shoulders. The kids were scattering in all directions. We caught sight of a few of them whooshing through the trees in the distance, a terrified face here, a glimpse of sneaker blur there. But some of the sky chambers started to notice us. Three broke away from the main group and started to run us down. Sasha, run deeper into the woods, Ace shouted to me. Somehow we thought if we got under the cover of the trees, the UFOs wouldn't see us. We must have covered a couple miles by then. Minutes later, he ran down a muddy slope into a ravine and slipped. He went sprawling down a hill of black slop. I heard his trench coat catch on something and tear. He got up at the bottom, covered in mud, eyes looking like he was about to cry. He looked back up at me, and I looked down at him. And I think I saw him for the very first time as he really was in that second. He was shivering in just his underwear, and our eyes met. Then he caught sight of a sky chamber over my shoulder. Without a second thought, he left me behind and whooshed as fast as he could deeper into the woods. I just stared at his back as he ran away. I couldn't believe it. He'd actually just left me behind. I was still in shock when a purple light enveloped me. I squinted and could barely see. I felt suddenly lighter and then I was falling up. I screamed. I could see the whole neighborhood rushing away beneath me, like I was looking at a toy town or out the window of an airplane. But this lasted only a moment. Within three seconds, I was slipping through this weird honeycomb tube tunnel thing inside the bottom of the sky chamber. I went around a few corners, and then I went down this white tube like a water slide. It dropped me on this big white room shaped like a tall dome. There were about 50 other kids in here, all in various stages of dress. Most of them had been caught sleeping. Many had only woken up once they were in the air. A few even had their sleeping bags and blankets still with them. One kid helped me to my feet. Everywhere I looked, I saw glum, terrified faces. Nobody said anything. We all thought we were going to die. Not more than a few minutes later, Ace fell from the same slide thing at the top of the chamber. He landed on the floor with a squishy splash of mud. The kids all recognized him right away, of course, and backed up. They didn't know whether he knew anything about what was going on. After all, Ace claimed to have started the pocket. Maybe these UFOs were friends of his or something. But after a few minutes, Ace stood up, looking badly scared. There he was, in his underwear and sneakers, covered in mud, and their brains finally started working. Ace didn't know any more than they did. He was a prisoner, just like they were. He'd been lying to them this whole time. they just gotten their first peek behind the curtain, and it turned out the wizard was nothing more than a stupid bully. Ace just stood there and looked around the room of fifty kids. Nobody said anything, but the looks in their eyes were different now. They were pissed off. They'd been lied to, and they weren't happy about it. And Ace wasn't happy about the way they were all looking back at him. He was used to more respect. He looked like he was going to say something when he suddenly saw me. I glared at him and shook my head. No. These kids were liable to kill him if he opened his mouth. 
Ace looked like he was going to crack in half. He couldn't become a nobody, not after having all that power for so long. He didn't know what to do. Slowly, he put his torn trench coat on, covering himself with as much dignity as he could muster. But then a door opened in the chamber. We'd already landed in New York, though I didn't know it at the time. Several figures stood in blaring white light. I expected TV aliens, you know, the greys or whatever. But instead, the centurions, regular human-looking guys in golden armor, entered. They were grinning. Moffdet was with them. He said, Children of the black-headed ones, thy lives are now forfeit, but we shall lease them back to you in return for thy slavery. I had no idea what he was talking about. They chained us all together. We were led outside, and I suddenly realized we were in New York. I could see the Empire State Building from where we were. We were brought together with several other groups of kids, all chained up like we were. And I looked around and I realized I'd gotten us. All of us. Every single one of the serpents and mermaids had been captured. And that's when I thought of you and Max and Ian. I wondered whether they'd caught you three yet. I figured they probably had, but I secretly hoped not. Later that day, Moffdet led us into the mothership, the giant sky chamber on the Great Lawn. There was this huge room inside, like a cathedral, something they called the Halls of Thunder. They made us march up the aisle, one by one, to the front. Kids were screaming when they got up there, but we couldn't see why. And then it was my turn. I was terrified. Why was everyone screaming? It looked like they were only up there for a second. And they walked me up to the front and stopped me in front of Moffdet. He smiled and said something in another language. Something old, ancient, sinister. He took my hand, and before I knew it was happening, he held a white-hot gemstone to the back of it. So, this is why everyone was screaming, I remember thinking, and then being surprised by the sound of my own howling. Then it was over. I looked down at the back of my hand. There, my shiny new sunbolt tattoo was, still smoking. Somebody was talking in my ear as I stared at it, telling me it meant that I was a slave now of the House of Jadith. Sasha looked down at the ground while Casey stared at the tattoo on her hand. I never felt so scared in my entire life as I did that moment. Casey nodded. And what about now, here in the jip? Sasha shrugged. Oh, I'm terrified, but it's different. I mean, I lived through it once, and at the time I didn't know whether it was possible to live through something like that and come out of it okay. But now I do. I know it's possible, deep in my heart of hearts. But I'm still terrified, Case. Almost as bad as I was on the day I got this tattoo. You've been listening to Max Quick, Book 2, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on this patio book, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. The print version of both The Pocket and the Pendant, Max Quick Book 1, and The Two Travelers, Max Quick Book 2, are available at lulu.com in paperback format, PDF format, and hardcover. <laughs>